Okay, so got a little bit of a headache, but I'm gonna give this a go. See how it goes. In my front sitting room, I can hear people on the street. Anyway, so reason and imagination. And I've just been thinking, they're almost, from the way he described it, they're almost like complete opposites. Because he says that reason is the faculty of mind that um, looks at the relations between one thought and another. Um, and reason respects the differences between these thoughts. And then imagination um, looks at the similarities between the thoughts. And, uh, and he says that imagination colors these thoughts with its own light, with the, with the light, with the light, with the mind's own light is what he says, which is very interesting. So it's kind of like reason is just about accept, accepting things as they are. And this is different from that. That's different from this. This is what it is and nothing else. And then imagination is like the complete opposite. It's like, oh... That's that, but imagine if it was like this, and it, it, it just takes whatever reason, accept it as fact or whatever, as one thing, and just <laughs> colors it with its own crazy light, and uh, yeah, makes anything out of it, really. Um, and then, like, reason only, um, reason respects the differences between things. Imagination looks at the similarity between things. So imagination and reason are, like, going by his definitions, Thinking about what he has said, they seem like complete uh, opposites, which is quite, which is quite new a new thought I just had. Um, next point is uh, renews by apprehending the before unapprehended relations of things. Yeah, that's uh, uh, renews by apprehending the before unapprehended relation of things. Yes, so creating new metaphors, new ways of looking things, reinvigorating language, reinvigorating your mode of perception through phrases, I guess. If you have a new phrase, you have a new way of looking at something. Um, it's, it's, uh, it renews language, keeps it from, di from dying. Um, here I have a little note made of the Sapphire Wharf, I think that's what it's called. Um, it's the, um, yeah, I've got a bad headache, so this isn't, this isn't so, helping so much, but uh, the Sapphire Wharf theory is that um, the way you view the world is defined by the language you use um, to see the world, um, which is an interesting theory. So, uh, yeah, the metaphors we live by which is, I'm pretty sure, the name of a book I have. Um, all metaphors were originally... I mean, all turn of phrases and stuff were... We use them now so just as phrases, but they were all, once upon a time, original and uh, metaphorical, but now we just... Uh, yeah, they're just so much a part of language now. We hardly even realize that they were once um, new metaphors, uh, you know, so until someone comes along with some new metaphors... Um, yeah, we're not shocked by by these sayings. Anyway, um, poets' thoughts are the germs of the flower of the fruit of the latest time. Poets' thoughts are the germ, which is like a seed, of the flower of the fruit of the latest time. Well, yeah, that's pretty cool. Any artist worth his salt, as they say, 
what the hell is that about? Worth his salt, worth his worth his water, worth his air, worth his oxygen. Uh, should be up to date with things that are going on in the world. Yeah. And then if they are up to date with what's going on in the world, they may have a slightly different perspective from people 50 years ago or something at least. They might have some new way of looking at the world. Um, and so because of this new way of looking at the world, they might come up with some new metaphors. Uh, and yeah, um, poets' thoughts are the germs of the flower of the fruit of the latest time. Yeah, so um, they will add some new... Um, phrases to language perhaps based on their work of uh, being up to date and uh, contemplating um, creatively with words. Poets, prophets, legislators, vates, etc. Vates. Vates. I wonder was Virgil considered a vate? Vates is a Roman times word for a poet. I wonder, this is my question, I wonder was Virgil a, a vate or was he just a poet? Because vates I think are kind of connected with like prophecy. Uh, translator must recast into their own language. Yeah, this is just about um, when you're translating from one language to another, you, you shouldn't do it just literally. You should literally recast it. This is what he's saying. That's uh, probably, well, I don't know. It would be interesting to see the translation of something literal and then a translation of something recast. That would be interesting. Um, poetry deals with the universal consideration. And history only with the particular. Oh yeah, this is a quote from Aristotle. It's kind of quite interesting. History would be trying to deal with just facts, and uh, poetry deals with the with universal consideration, which is interesting. That's kind of just like everything. One second. Now, second section. He is going on to that was what poetry is. Some points about what poetry is and who are poets. Um, and now the second section is poetry's effects on society acts in a divine manner beyond and above the consciousness of the poet. Yeah, so he was talking about how ancient poetry in, from oral cultures perhaps were saying things, the poets might say things that they, them, they themselves don't even fully understand but are, what, beneficial all the same? And then may, or maybe later generations will understand it better, which is, which is something that he kind of goes, goes back to again later on in the essay. Uh, it's actually on the very last very last paragraph of the of the essay he um, kind of uh, reiterates this idea um, he says things like um, they they sing a battle cry for a battle that they don't know or something like this and yeah I'll have to look at the exact quote again I haven't committed it to memory um, poetry cheers the soul just something I wrote down from the thing, poetry cheers the soul. This is probably connected to the next note, which is like a work back in the day, ancient day, a book. Well, it wouldn't have been a book. It was, a sto it was an oral story first. Homer, for example, his work, because of the characters in it, and the things they do and the way they do it, they would have been very admirable characters. And so they would have been admirable, admirable for their courage that they display, their virtue, their um, morality, uh, their intelligence, their truthfulness, um, the beauty of friendships in it, um, the strength of their patriotism, their loyalty. So all of these things are uh, seen as admirable. And why? <laughs> and why are these all seen as admirable? Because I guess a normal person just, uh, like a normal person, yeah, believes in truth. Um, 
virtue is all about. I think virtuousness is what did I hear before about being virtuous is um kind of like taking the middle path. You're not too what was it? They had a good I think it was from uh, Augusto Boal's um theater of the oppressed. There was an Aristotelian quote in it about virtue. I have that book here somewhere, actually, but um, oh, there it is. Um, yeah, it was uh, pretty good. Let me see if I just find it quickly. Um, it was something like virtuousness is, or am I confusing that with uh, righteousness, which is like the balance between, um, yeah, I am, Aaron Aronofsky, is that his name? The guy who made Noah. He said that righteousness is um, decision-making, without being too harsh or too merciful. You're in the middle, you're righteous. Um, it's pretty cool. Let's see if I can find this quote. There was something about virtue in it that was pretty good. I don't see it here, maybe it's further into the book. Do I have anything here? Uh, At that later I'll make a note so I will find that because it was a good one anyway yeah I got lots of notes in this one how far any notes oh, I got a bit right so anyway um yeah this was an interesting thought Ver <laughs> yeah why are all these things admirable why is <laughs> why is uh why are people wired to think that these things are good I, I think now I'm reminded of Plato's Republic something about that about um yeah Courage. This is a strange thought. So what are the opposites of all these things? Vice, which is selfishness. Courage is cowardliness. They just, I guess the opposite is just thinking of yourself. Vice, morality, shitty morality, just thinking of yourself. Once again, stupidity, intelligence. What is intelligence? Truth, dishonesty, dis disloyalty with, within friendship, patriotism. Uh, what's the opposite of that? Um, huh. Internationalism. Okay, I'll move on in some new thoughts there. <laughs> um, yeah, the admiration of all those things leads to imitation within the reader. So these, yeah, this is what um, Shelley was saying, that reading these excellent, um, famous stories will... Um, cultivate these virtues in people. Um, a poet considers the vices of his age as the temporary dress in which his creation must be arrayed. Yeah, this is interesting. This is all about couching your art in the terms of the time, I think. It talks about, um, I'll go on to it, the ever-changing set of circumstances that the eternal must be couched in. The metaphors of Jesus, for example, I was thinking he used he spoke about like men fishing, fishing men. He says to the first two disciples, I think he comes across. He says, "Follow me, and I will teach you how to catch men, not fish." Uh, mustard seeds, common spice at the time. Um, carpentry, the plank, the what was it? The speck, the speck in your neighbor's eye, and the plank in your own eye. Um, is this? alloy of costume and habit necessary to temper the eternal's planetary music for mortal ears. Yeah, this is very interesting. Um, 
this is like thinking about poetry that's maybe too raw, too direct. Does it have to be tempered with, um, what did they say here, costume, with the costumes and habit of the day? Is it possible to get so direct, I wonder? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting one. That was an interesting one for me. It was making me think about raw poetry. Yeah. This idea of uh, putting it in the costume and habit of the day. He is asking, is it necessary to temper the, the planetary music for mortal ears? It was interesting. Um, it enlarges the mind of the auditor. This is an interesting word he was using, auditor. I'd have to look it up now, but... Uh, uh, by presenting a thousand unapprehended, this is about the renewal of the renewing aspect of uh, language um, through poetry, and by, by renewing language, you're renewing perception, renewing, renewing, yeah, someone's mind essentially. It enlarges the mind of the auditor by presenting a thousand unapprehended combinations of thought. Poetry lifts the veil from the hidden beauty of the world and makes familiar objects be as if they were not familiar. Yeah, this is like pounds make it new. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you can get just so like stagnant in thinking the same things. Yeah. Yes, we need <laughs> constant uh, reinvigoration. I have a note here. Later, this will be reiterated by Coleridge's phrase, purging the film of familiarity. Yep. Later, also described as a redeemer from decay of language um, by reinvigorating, uh, similar to pounds make it new, yes, uh, it, reprodu it reproduces all that it represents and the impersonations clothed in its Elysian light stand, once contemplated as memorials of that gentle and exalted uh, state of mind, is it? It's um, a nice phrase. Um, it reproduces all and all it represents and, in, and the impersonations closed in its Elysian light. Elysian light is nice. Um, its ennobling effect. Mm, con contact with it enhances one's considerations. Sure, one's considerations, yeah. From just simply looking at the way looking at things, how they're connected to things, yeah. The secret of morals is love. A going out of ourselves to identify with beauty in the thought, action, or person, not our own. Yeah, this is, yeah. To be greatly good, one must imagine the situation of many others. The pains and pleasures of his species must become his own. This is quite good. Yeah, here he's getting into that uh, imagination is actually like a part of what empathy is. Because you're empathizing. It's like you're imagining what someone else is maybe going through. Um... Yeah, it's like a kind of a, empathy is kind of like a, yeah, the more you would think about it, the more you might get imaginative about it in considering it. But I think empathy is something, if you if you have a lot of it, whatever, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's more of a knee-jerk type of imagination, let's say. Um, and, then, and then you can go further with it. It's like a, it's like a low low level of uh, imagination that's constantly with an empathic person. And then imagination can be maybe a little bit more deliberate as well, if you think about it more. But just seeing people on the street or somewhere being, getting um, 
you know, you see something that happens and you're immediately kind of like, you think about it, like that was wrong or something, you have some empathy towards it, that's kind of like a constant imagination that's going on. Anyway, <clears throat> it's interesting, the relationship between empathy and imagination. Uh, poetry strengthens the moral faculty of men. Here we are, this is, this is because um, if, if poetry is going to cultivate one's imagination, one will be more imaginative, one will be perhaps more empathic, uh, one will consider moral predicaments, moral situations in a more nuanced, developed way. Developed way. So yeah, it's interesting. The poetry of courtesy. Hmm. Damn, I had a phrase about courtesy before. Oh yeah, courtesy is the poetry of behavior or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I had before. I think that's in maybe the the other essay from the Renaissance period. Poetry. Courtesy is the poetry of conduct. That's what it was. It's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah, the more kind of imaginative, poetic a person is going to be, the more inclined you can imagine them being very... Um, oh, I found a book here. How the Irish Save Civilization in this drawer. It's a good book. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I had forgotten that phrase. Courtesy is the poetry of conduct. Yeah, I think I got that from some other essay. Yeah, it's not in this one. But uh, it relates exactly here. Um, I think I had that written in the margins, prompted from some other book, and I put it in because it seemed appropriate next to that last sentence. Thus, poets with less poetry in them may affect to aim at moral poetry, which is less nurturing in effect than high imaginative poetry. Yeah, he, here he's, he was. Yeah, if someone is maybe less poetic, they're going to go for more, more moral themes. Uh, to count to kind of uh, make up for their lack of imagination, is it? But he's saying ultimately, just being ima imaginative is going to feed into a person in a in a better way than kind of the overly direct uh, moral preaching. That's interesting. Um, the preeminence of Athenian poetry. Yeah, he was talking about the excellence of Athenian poetry. Yeah, he speaks about, um, I've added in the word Gesamkunstwerk. That's a, not sure who, who, is it Schiller or Goethe? One of these German um, Enlightenment figures who uh, use this word for a Gesamtkunstwerk means like a total work of art. This is what Shelley is talking about in this essay. He's talking about Greek theater incorporated all the arts, uh, not just poetry, not just, you know, painting or vases or anything. They were all in a, in a theatre. Um, let me just point that out. Um, he claims the presence or absence of poetry in its most perfect and universal form has been found to be connected with good and evil in conduct or habit of an age. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, he's saying basically if the art of an age is poor, that age is going to get poorer. And the poorer that age gets, probably then the poorer the art gets. Um, I'm reminded now of um, in, um, in uh, Ezra Pound's essay, The Serious Artist, I think it's in that essay, it's in one of his essays anyway. He <laughs> seriously, yeah, he makes the same claim here actually. He, he says that... Um, World War One, I, I think it was, would not have happened. It would not have been 
conceived of by the Germans to go ahead with that if the German literature had been better. I'm going to be reading that essay. I think it's that essay, The Serious Artist. I'm going to be rereading that soon. Um, so we'll see um, if it was in that essay and what what more he has to say about that. But it's, it's, it's relating exactly to what uh, Shelley was saying here in this essay. Because it's all about clarity of thought. Um, the better the literature is, the clearer people are thinking. And the clearer people are thinking, apparently, what? That's going to make them better people? Um, possibly. Um, possibly. Um, right, I'll move on. The next note I have taken here, where is it? Yeah, poor art equals poor manners equals poor age. Yeah. Yes, and he talks about, maybe I have it's a note later else later on, but he talks about, he, he appeals to anyone to just look at the history of manners throughout history to uh, see whenever there was a drop in manners of an age. Look then at the art or the poetry or the whatever uh, literature there was for that age and see how how it compared to what he considers to be the highest uh, form of literature, which is, uh, you could take Athenian poetry um, or plays uh, as the kind of a model, see how far it was or near it was to the quality of that. Okay, um, good poetry or art strengthens the good affections, pity, indignation, terror, sorrow. Um, yeah, now this is interesting, it gets into tragedy. Uh, and then he, and then I don't have it taken down here, but I remember then he was talking about um, poor art. When art becomes poor because society has become a bit uh, poorer, um, he says that like uh, indignation turns to kind of like laughter. Um, what did he say? I can't remember the exact phrase now, but it was like um, almost undeserved laughter. But you're laughing, yeah, almost undeservedly. Um, uh, maybe I'll look up that for the next draft of this, this, uh, this, um, yeah, uh, overview of this essay, the next draft of it. Um, I was reminded of Joyce's terror and pity definitions. I think he, in, in his aesthetic notebooks, he says that, oh, Aristotle hasn't defined these things, but I will. And then uh, he goes on to uh, define terror and pity. I think it was... He says that in his notebooks, he says, oh, Aristotle didn't define these, but I will. And then he gives some definitions. Uh, I think it was terror and pity. Not exactly sure. I haven't looked at that notebook in a long time, so I have to look up, look up that as well. Um, yes, and in Joyce's notebooks, he was talking about the stasis that a good work of art will evoke rather than kinesis. Um, he was talking about how pornography is a poor form of art because it makes you want to go do something. Uh, whereas stasis, this word is similar, is, is exactly, I think, what Shelley is talking about because he says, um, in drama of the highest order, there is little food for censure or hatred. It teaches rather self-knowledge and self-respect. Uh, for example, uh, crime is disarmed of half of its horror by being represented as the as the fatal consequences of unfathomable agencies of nature. Um, so like the viewer sees that it's not really kind of like that particular person who is so evil. Okay, this is veering into, uh, let's just say, normally um, kind of decent people doing bad things as opposed to actual evil people, <laughs> which I think 
some kind of do exist in the form of sociopaths. But um, so anyway, I'll go, go again. Crime is disarmed uh, of half of its horror by being represented as the fatal consequences of unfathomable agencies of nature. Horror is thus divested of its willfulness. Yeah. Men no longer cherish it as the creation of their choice. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting. It's like this really good theater he's saying, this is the joy. If I had the Joyce quote to hand now, it would be perfect because it's like uh, terror is what unites the viewer with what is like eternal and um, tragic in human affairs or something like this. Um, so it's a very kind of like a, it gives you kind of like a two ways of looking at uh, the, the tragic act that's happening. Um, so that that's what provides the stasis. Yeah, it's, it, it makes you think a lot, I guess, rather than want to act. That's, yeah, this word stasis is, 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 is appropriate. Anyway, I'll move on. The tempering effects of good tragedy. Yeah, mm, this is like mm, catharsis, the tempering effects. Yeah, kind of as a educational, mm, uh, what, facility, <laughs> um, Greek theater, yeah. Um, what podcast was I listening to? I was listening to a podcast about dithyrams, which were apparently, it's apparently what were the or what led to Greek theater, dithyrams. Um, and they were, I think, kind of songs or poems about Dionysius. Um, anyway, veering off target here. Uh, I'll get back to the next note. So the declining theater um referred to as how long am i going here now yeah jesus 25 minutes declining theater referred to as domestic drama oh yeah pandering to kingly power over liberty and virtue yeah this is when an age has become a bit like and the poets are kind of pandering to political powers of the day or something because maybe they're afraid of the king or something so they have to like uh, kind of warp their natural perhaps inclinations in terms of content in the poem or whatever to um, yeah pander to some yeah some egomaniac king or whatever um, during such periods the calculating principle this is a phrase he uses a lot and I, I yeah it's um, yeah I have a poem about it <laughs> um, during such periods, the calculating principle pervades all the forms of dramatic exhibition. Yeah, this is something now that I've really got from this essay. Um, yeah, I mean, I was aware of the topic already, but it's, it's just uh, presented to me again. I'm thinking about it again and how you could really make a big work about it. Not just one poem. Um, Inasmuch as... Um, as they were not poets, they can be connected with the corruption of their age. Had that corruption availed so as to extinguish... I'll just read this again, I wasn't concentrating. Let me have a drink. Inasmuch as they were not poets, they can be connected with the corruption of their age. He's talking about, yeah, poets of a poor age. Um, because they weren't really poets, and so their art is... Is, yeah, not helping society. Had that corruption availed so as to extinguish in them the sensibility to pleasure, passion, and natural scenery, which is imputed to them as an imperfection, the last triumph of all of evil would have been achieved. Yeah, this is just about the withering of uh, 
this is an interesting phrase here. Um, if if the their sensibility to pleasure had been extinguished, that would have been the final corruption of them. That's interesting. To pleasure. Hmm. Taking pleasure in something. Taking pleasure in something. Taking pleasure in a flower. Taking pleasure, I guess, yeah. Taking pleasure in things like that is much more thoughtful. And I guess, yeah, I mean, <laughs> people who can take pleasure in flowers might, may, um, in general, perhaps be less violent people, for example. don't know. Anyway, so that's... If, but if that... If that um, sensibility to pleasure of something like a flower, for example, is extinguished in a man, maybe they're more of a savage. So I think that's what he's getting at here. Interesting. Uh, for the end of social corruption is to destroy all sensibility of pleasure. Yeah. It begins at the imagination. Mm. If someone doesn't have an imagination or isn't imaginative, if they're just ruled by the calculating principle, that's like a savagery, isn't it? It's like a, if, they're, if they're ruled by a instrumental rationality as opposed to a value rationality. Yeah, there we go. They're kind of a savage, aren't they? Mm, less, less sentient. This is, yeah, this is, this, what a great essay. Um, it begins, this, this corruption begins at, at the imagination and the intellect as at the core and distributes itself as a paralyzing venom through the affections into the very appetites until all become a torpid, which means benumbed mass in which sense hardly survives. Yeah, exactly. This is so good. Yeah, the more, yeah, the more you sensitive you are to things. Jesus, yeah, isn't life so much better? <laughs> when, yeah, the more things you're sensitive to, just thoughtful of, the more things you're thoughtful of. I'm sitting here at this table it's like a, I don't know from what sense, it's like a, I don't know, it's early 20th century kind of a bureau. Um, just, you know, thinking about that. Yeah, I don't know. I'll move on. Um, I need some more. I'm going to have to eat soon. Anyway, poetry ever communicates all the pleasures which men are capable of receiving. Yeah, it is ever still the light of life, hmm. the source of whatever beautiful or generous or true can have place in an evil time. That's cool. It's really like the light of what's good in the world, what makes life worth living. And as um, Pound said, a simple definition of beauty is things that make life worth living. Mm, beauty. I'm just thinking now again about that word beauty. What is it? I guess now I'm thinking of Joyce's uh, aesthetic notebook again. Beauty is something like uh, the most satisfying perception of rela intelligible relations or something like this. But why is it satisfying? So what is, what is it, what is it that's, what's the criteria for satisfaction? Yeah. These are interesting thoughts. This is all the first draft. I'm going to probably listen to this again and take notes. Uh, yeah. It's like, it's like Joyce, to, uh, in that aesthetic notebook, he set himself questions. And uh, by 
answering those questions, but doing the investigation to answer those questions, yeah, he, he learned a lot. So that's what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to re-listen to it. And I've already brought, asked myself some questions or, or, or uh, thought of some things to look into further. Because if, I'm, if I want to look into them further, it means I don't know them. <laughs> and I want to know them. Yeah, so it's so, all, yeah, this is, this, is, uh, this is going good. Wait a second now, where am I? Um, yes. Okay, so yes, poetry is like this thing that tries to keep alive um, all that is worth, uh, worth living for in, in the world. In evil times. Every time is evil, isn't it? Is it? But corruption must utterly have destroyed the fabric of human society before poetry can ever cease. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. And the, later on, he will talk maybe on the next page of notes. Now he's going to talk about how, and, and it's true in let's say continental Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, what poetry was being written? Let Let's take where the, the territories where the Roman Empire was. Once the Roman Empire fell, what? When did poetry start being written again in that same territory? You know, that's like that was the total corruption of those territories, maybe. Uh, but corruption must utterly have destroyed the fabric of human society before poetry can ever cease. And uh, I mean, I mean, there is the song of what's he called, Roland? That's a song written. I'm not sure. Yeah, sometime maybe shortly after the age of Charlemagne, um, or maybe even during it, because it's a poem about Charlemagne trying to uh, protect um, the advance of the Saracens, the Islamic um, army um, in, this, in the north of Spain, I think they were about to approach, get into uh, France. What are those, what's those mountain range? The Apennines? I'm not sure. The south of France. Um, anyway, but yeah, um, it seems like the real, once again, emerging of poetry in, in the territories where the Roman Empire had been, and it corrupted itself and it fell. It seemed like, I mean, that's what, 4th, 5th century BC or AC, AD. And it, it wasn't until the 11th century when the troubadours started coming out. Uh, and that's when there was a, that's when poetry got a real, seems to have re-emerged. You know, there wasn't much, it seems, been written uh, up until then. So it's amazing. Yeah, I'm curious about those, those dark ages. Yeah, I must, I have some texts on them. I must look at them again. But uh, yeah, something else to look into. How, how, yeah, how dark were they? Um, okay, next page. How many more do I have? Not so many. What's that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Ooh, 35 minutes in already. It is the faculty which contains within itself the seeds at once of its own and of social renovation. I mean, wow. He said something like that earlier. Um, the germ, the fruit of the latest times. Yeah, it is the faculty which contains within itself the seeds at once of its own and of social trans social renovation. It's very true, isn't it? Um, what an imagination can do. 
early dark ages whatever evil was in their agencies sprung from the extinction of the poetic poetic principle connected to the progress of despotism and superstition um lust avarice cruelty and what's that fraud characterized a race amongst whom no one was found to be capable of creating in form language or institution i'm thinking still of the dark ages in europe um yeah creating in form language or institution um seriously considering experimenting with recasting my mind oh yeah that's just my, i have that here that's fine um european poetry post rome until pre 12th century yes this is what i was already talking about so the freedom of women produced the poetry of sexual love and this is the troubadours what they were working with this is interesting uh, love became a religion the idols of whose worship were ever present because they were women these poets cast women in um yeah, there's another this is just a great great quote here as if the statue of apollo and the muses had been endowed with life and had walked um had walked among their worshippers so that earth became peopled by the inhabitants of a diviner world the familiar appearances and proceedings of life became wonderful and heavenly and a paradise was created out of the wrecks of eden and that's an amazing phrase um how can I put it in my own words? I mean, it's an amazing phrase, but let's just try to put it in my own words. It's like, um, yeah, I guess the tenderness, there was a new tenderness, perhaps, a gentleness with a, some sort of, perhaps a restraint towards women, seeing them as, yeah, something to be worshipped. Perhaps up until that point, they perhaps they weren't treated with such respect. I'm not so sure, but now they became um yeah these like uh, divine figures to be worshipped um and that would have certainly changed people's um anyone who would, would hear these poems may have been influenced encouraged to yeah be a lot more gentle wouldn't they let me see i have to keep on bringing this thing back around it's nine o'clock now um how would the moral condition of the world be if Dante, Petrarch, Boccaccio, uh, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Calderon, who I don't know, Lord Bacon or Milton had never existed. Mm. I think before this one, he was talking about some kind of rationalists like Voltaire and Rousseau. Um, I think he was talking about people who weren't poets and he was saying, if they hadn't existed, what would the world be like? I think he, he doesn't give much, um, doesn't give much, uh, what's the word? Mm. He says their effect wouldn't have, wasn't as great. More, uh, I can say, their effect if they hadn't existed would have been much was much would have been much less uh, than if uh, yeah Dante and Shakespeare and all these other people hadn't existed. That would have been a great, greater, much greater loss. He was saying, um, cultivation of those sciences which have broadened the limits. Of the empire of man yeah and this is kind of now this next quote is kind of related to rationalists and imaginists let's say <laughs> i made up a new word um right because here he's about to kind of talk about how the rationalist view which has progressed sciences and stuff but at the same time it has it has kind of overpowered 
uh, and kind of like uh, been smothering the poetic imaginative faculty of the mind and that's kind of doing um, humanity a bit of uh, detriment. The cultivation of those sciences which have broadened the limits of the empire of man have, have however, due to their lack of partnership, this is my own wording, with the poetic faculty, have circumscribed proportionally the inner world of man, mechanistic view. Therefore, man, having enslaved the elements, remains himself a slave to the mechanistic view. <clears throat> I'll just go on to the next quote because it's related. Um, the world is... Oh yeah, now the next one, this is my own wording again, because the way he worded it, yeah, you can read it, <laughs> but it's a long sentence and I found... It was a, yeah, it's just a different style. It was quite, quite hard to keep it all in my mind. I don't know, I had to read it a few times. So anyway, I just said I would reword it myself to see if it's clearer for me. The world is most in need of poetry when due to an excess of selfishness and the calculating principle, people or society have amassed such an amount of material wealth that it overpowers man's ability to assimilate the effects of such material domination into a harmonious incorporation within the internal laws of human nature. Now, that was probably <laughs> uh, difficult, but that was better put uh, uh, for maybe people in our time to understand than the way he had said it because there was so much in it. Um, so basically, and now I'm going to do it again. I'm, I'm going to try and refine it even more. Um, the world is most in need of poetry when there is an excess of material wealth due to selfishness and the calculating principle. Um, and when there is all of this wealth and all of this maybe technology or power from material wealth, um, it, it has completely uh, become out of balance with the... The other aspects of humanity, which are these like inner poetic and imaginative faculties, which are important. And the, the phrase he uses, um, the internal laws of human nature get out of balance when uh, people are just too selfish or too um, in thrall of the calculating principle. Um, so I'll just continue on here. Uh, man loses his control slash awareness of or over the effects of the new material realities, technologies, environments that he has created when, when he has too much wealth or, you know, if someone has too much power or something, there's a lot, there's a new environment going on, there's lots of new effects of things in that env environment to the point where the effects are influencing him in many unperceived new ways and he's not aware of them and that's a problem. Um, so he has to yeah, that's the problem. He has to, yeah. I'm just thinking. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. That's fine. Um, poetry, he claims, cannot be composed at will. Oh yeah, this is interesting. Uh, he says, even the best poets can't say, I will compose today. He says, yeah, this, here he goes into just kind of like the mystical nature of poetry or of any art or something, kind of inspiration. Um, yeah. Um, it, could this influence, oh yeah, and then he talked about if, if it could be summoned at will, 
uh, and uh, if it could be sustained at will, could this influence be durable in its original purity and force? It is impossible to predict the greatness of the results. Yeah, imagine <laughs> that's pretty cool. I, I have a note written underneath this like, wow, yeah, that, that's a very interesting idea to be fleshed out in some fiction or some poem even. Just if like there is some artist today or, some, or maybe in the future, humans have learned how to sustain a really intense um, uh, state of uh, imaginativeness. Um, yeah, it's quite cool. Very uh, interesting idea. But he says it's, and he says, when composition begins, inspiration is already on the decline. And the most glorious poetry that has ever been communicated to the world is probably a feeble shadow of the original conception of the poets. Yep. Uh, an idea is only as good as its execution. Yeah, taking things out of the realm of possibility into actuality. Yep, do they translate equally? Yes, interesting stuff. Um, 44 minutes. Quotes. Uh, oh yeah, he quotes Plato. Um, Inspiration is to be possessed by a spirit, not your own. That's what Plato says in some... Uh, I don't have the reference here. But then uh, Socrates to the dithyrambic poets in, in, in Plato's comedy called Ion. Um, their response on the wiki page. Um, um, it is as if it were the interpenetration of a diviner nature through our own. Oh yeah, sorry. The, the Socrates says to the dithyrambic poets, he brings to them some of their most kind of complicated uh, lines. And he says, where did this come from? How did you write this? And he says, and they basically just reply, um, basically, we don't know. <laughs> so he just came to us. Uh, maybe I can write that quote down as well. It's a good one to have. Um, the state of mind produced by them is at war with every base desire. So this is like, um, yeah, Sim to Joyce quotes. Oh yeah, the artist uh, until he has freed himself from every low, flattering, um, flattery of vanity. He is no artist. Blah blah blah. Um, the enthusiasm of virtue, love, patriotism, and friendship is essentially linked with such emotions. Whilst they last, self appears as what it is—an atom to the universe. So yeah, the, here is the imagination seems very like a very selfless state of mind to be in. Um, so that's a good phrase. When you're in the, let's say, in the throes of some imaginative uh, um, trance, um, self appears as what it is, an atom to a universe. Poetry makes immortal all that is best and most beautiful in the world. It asserts the vanishing apparitions which haunt the interlunations of life. That's good. Poetry makes immortal all that is best and most beautiful in the world. It asserts, it arrests the vanishing apparitions which haunt the interlunations of life. Uh, interlunations, I've looked up, means the time between full moons. Uh, poetry redeem, redeems the decay from the visitations of the divinity and man. Poetry redeems the decay. The visitations... Poetry redeems, oh, poetry redeems from decay the visitations of the divinity in man. 
that's interesting. These like, yeah, capturing the <laughs> glimpses of the divinity of humanity. It's interesting. Otherwise, if someone didn't capture it, yeah, it's interesting. Um, it strips the veil of familiarity from the world. It purges from our inward sight the film of familiarity. That's Coleridge quote. Um, it compels us to feel that which we perceive, to really feel that which we perceive. Maybe we were, were numb to it. This is like making it new. Yeah, it compels us to feel that which perhaps before we never really felt. Yeah, it's interesting. And to imagine that which we know, to actually think about things that we actually know differently, is it? It's interesting. Um, it creates anew the universe after it has been annihilated in our minds by the recurrence of impressions blunted by reiteration. It's great, yeah? It recreates anew the universe because we're... Um, so used to thinking of it in such kind of stagnant ways and if you write it in a new way you're completely like reintroduced to aspects of life perhaps uh, a poet as he is the author to others of the highest wisdom pleasure virtue and glory so he ought personally be the happiest the best the wisest and the most illustrious of men yeah here is interesting they say this about Dante don't they that he was like extremely moral guy yeah um probably uh, i wonder what, why did he get banished i must, I must look into it but uh possibly fell in with some sociopath <laughs> the greatest poets have been men of the most spotless virtue and the most consummate prudence prudent prudent is like discerning is it i must look that must look up that word again Prudence and impudence, words that I haven't said in a long time. As he is more delicately organized than other men and sensible to pain and pleasure, both his own and that of others, in a degree unknown to them. Yeah, this is like something else that I hear about what a writer does. A writer makes, a writer articulates experiences that were previously unarticulated, thus further mapping out the human experience, thus helping. It's interesting, yeah. That, I forget where that came from, but that's one of the kind of, yeah, things a writer can do. And that's, uh, it's nice to have new um, explanations for things or w terms of uh, just, uh, yeah, I mean, even just uh, the other day I was listening to, what's he called, Darren McGarvey? Um, the Scottish kind of, is he a Marxist or he, he was a rapper, he goes by the name of L Loki. Um, and he was, he just said an interesting, there was lots of interesting phrases in those, con uh, in that conversation. But one of them was, um, he was talking about working class men in Scotland, uh, having, having no like romantic view of how to be a man in the world. And so they just had no, uh, like positive way of kind of like, uh, operating in the world they had no role model essentially but that was just an interesting phrase for example um, it was um, yeah they had they had no he's the guy said he had these people who just kind of you know become alcoholics or whatever um, it's possibly because they just had no romantic view of how to be a man which is quite a nice phrase you know 
Um, yeah, okay, I'll move on. Um, um, as he is more, oh yeah, I've read that one already. Um, the most un from uh, the most unfailing herald, companion and follower of the awakening of a great people, to to work a beneficial change in opinion or institution, is poetry. Poetry, yeah. The most unfailing herald, companion, and follower of the awakening of a great people to to work a beneficial change in opinion or institution is poetry. Okay, <laughs> if you say so. Um, I guess, I mean, now I think of how when he says poetry, I can, I can, you can almost interchange the word, the word with like, with writer or filmmaker, you know, uh, because... Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of, uh, I was watching the, the latest Star Wars film last night, and in the end, they, the, the resistance needed a lot more people to come and join the fight, um, uh, because they were about, the resistance were about to take on a, a whole new massive fleet of uh, ships that the, the, what do you call it, the First Order uh, had made, and... Um, they were never going to be able to destroy them all themselves. Um, so they sent out a call for people to come. And then when, yeah, as they do in Star Wars, it, it hope arrives at the last second each time, which, which is pretty cool, really high dra drama. I like them. But um, he... Um, so when the all of the... Uh, overwhelming number of um, people do hear the call and join the resistance. Um, the the first empire are you know saying, oh captain, there's a whole, there's a, ships incoming, and when they see the amount of them, the guy goes, um, this is relating back to poetry uh, being the herald of a changement in in uh, thought of an age. Um, the point is that um, he says. The the captain goes. Where did they, where did they where did the resistance get this navy from? And the other guy says, uh, "It's it's it's not a navy. It's it's just people. So it's about um, people rising. It's like you know that's in a film from what two three years ago, uh, and it was just uh, representing the power of people power. Um, so yeah, in terms of." The most unfailing herald, companion, and follower of the awakening of a great people to work a beneficial change in opinion or institution is, you could say, films <laughs> or yeah, anything is is art. Yeah, a musician can do it, you know, rallying call to a movement or whatever. So yeah, this essay was written, whoa, like two hundred and two hundred and two hundred and two years ago yeah that's yeah it's still just excellent um they measure the circumference and sound the depths of human nature yep with a comprehensive and all penetrating spirit and they are themselves perhaps the most sincerely astonished talking talk about poets here at its manifestations for it is less their spirit than the spirit of the age mm -hmm. Poets are the hierophants, meaning initiate priests, of an unapprehended inspiration. The words which express what they understand not, the trumpets which sing the battle 
and feel not what they inspire this is what i was talking about he was saying ancient at the start of the essay ancient poets poets or maybe or any any poets really but he he started off saying it with ancient poets were saying things that maybe um were just um not even uh fully understood by the poets themselves but at the same time there was meaning there um maybe it was later generations who who un understand it a bit better than the people at the time um so here he is saying again um poets are like the trumpets which sing to battle and feel not what they inspire and then he ends the um the words which express what they understand not and then he ends with the famous line poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world jesus 56 minutes <clears throat> well yeah so i have some i'm gonna listen back to this and there was a few things that i had thought uh and i'm gonna look into those and uh yeah uh, get the answers to those things I was asking about myself about. So yeah, this was good. 56 minutes. Right, so we'll end it there.